Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. And uh, we will be starting an exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the book of Philippians, over the next few months or however long it takes. Um, and so we're starting today in chapter 1 and verses 1 to 2 as we look at the introduction to this letter of Paul's to the church at Philippi. So, read along with me the first two verses. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter, for all the principles and instructions that are contained therein concerning Jesus Christ, the gospel, gospel ministry, the church, sanctification, holy living, all the things that are beneficial to us as believers. And Lord, as we look through this book over the coming weeks and months, help us to glean from it. Help us to understand it. And Lord, as we look at this introduction, these two short verses, help us to see the principles contained therein, the implications and applications, the meaning, the context. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that my words would be your words. Your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, this letter, um, many commentators, uh, many study Bibles, uh, many preachers have called this uh, letter the letter of joy, or have um, seen that theme of joy stand out throughout this whole letter. Um, It's either explicitly stated in rejoicing or or joy or implied to, um, as Paul speaks, uh, in in a a sense of the joy he has in Christ. Um, And he tells us, um, he instructs us to have joy in Christ despite our circumstances as he has joy and he sees joy in Christ despite his own circumstances as he's writing this um, from his um, from Rome as he's uh, in prison. Um, we just recently uh, went through uh, Colossians and this letter was written roughly about the same time under the same circumstances as Paul is uh, As we read at the end of Acts, he is now in house arrest in Rome for the preaching of the gospel, um, where he will be there um, for a couple years, as as most believe. And he's able to um, have visitors and write letters, um, but nonetheless, he is imprisoned. And so he writes this letter to uh, the church at Philippi, one of the first churches, He, in fact, the first church he did establish in uh, Europe, in Macedonia. And uh, so there's many things to 
um, see here. But one thing that I want you to see as we go through this exposition is uh, the sense of joy, of joy in Christ, of joy in spite of our circumstances because of our um, union with Christ. Uh, one commentator, he says this, he says, the purpose of this book is to thank the Philippians for their gift to Paul. He says that in chapter 4 and verses 10 to 18, and then to explain his present circumstances while in prison in Rome, all the while exhorting the congregation to joyful pursuit of Christ despite the threats of persecution, pride, and ambition, false teachers, and material need. And so we'll see this concept of joy, that we are commanded to have joy, um, whatever the circumstances, because we've been redeemed, if you have been redeemed. And the most important need for any human being, if you're in Christ, has been taken care of. But in uh, introducing this letter, not just in Paul's short introduction, but just um, the, whole, the letter as a whole in the church at Philippi, uh, I want you to get a, a bit of a background. And so I'm going to read a lengthy quote from uh, uh, John MacArthur's Bible commentary, but I think it's important to just set the context for the historical context of uh, the, the city of Philippi and also the uh, biblical context of um, Paul and uh, the church at Philippi and all the things we learn, because um, as you will see, this context is important. It will become more important as we um, get into the letter, and you'll see that. So just uh, bear with me as I read this, this quote. And um, so he says this. Um, originally, the, uh, speaking of the, the city of Philippi, he said, originally known as Crenides, meaning the little fountains, because of the numerous nearby springs. Philippi, the city of Philip, received its name from Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Attracted by the nearby gold mines, Philip conquered the region in the 4th century B.C. In the 2nd century B.C., Philippi became part of the Roman province of Macedonia. The city existed in relative obscurity for the next two centuries until one of the most famous events in Roman history brought it recognition and expansion. In 42 B.C., the forces of Antony and Octavian defeated those of Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi, thus ending the Roman Republic and ushering in the Roman Empire. If, like me, any of you had to read uh, William Shakespeare's uh, Julius Caesar in high school, you'll remember that account of A2 Brute <laughs> and Brutus, who was in on the conspiracy to kill Julius Caesar, and then the result, Antony, Mark Antony, was Caesar's um, confidant and fought on that side and then they fought against each other and the result was the end of the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. He goes on, MacArthur goes on saying, after the battle Philippi became a Roman colony and many veterans of the Roman army settled there. As a colony, Philippi had autonomy from the provincial government and the same rights granted to cities in Italy, including the use of Roman law exemption from some taxes and Roman citizenship for its residents. Being a colony was also the source of much civic pride for the Philippians, who used Latin as their official language, adopted Roman customs, and modeled their city government after that of Italian cities. 
Acts and Philippians both reflect Philippi's status as a Roman colony. Paul's description of Christians as citizens of heaven was appropriate, since the Philippians prided themselves on being citizens of Rome. The Philippians may well have known some of the members of the palace guard and Caesar's household. The church at Philippi, the first one founded by Paul in Europe, dates from the apostles' second missionary journey. Philippi evidently had a very small Jewish population because there were not enough men to form a synagogue. The requirement was for 10 Jewish men who were heads of a household to form a synagogue. Some devout women met outside the city at a place of prayer alongside the river. And this goes back to uh, uh, Psalm, um, I believe it's 137, where um, it says uh, on the, there at the um, river we, we hung our, our harps. Um, talking about the exile of Babylon. From that point on, um, when Jews gathered together and there wasn't a synagogue, they would go to meet at the river for prayer. Being outside the nation, they would meet at a river. So he goes on and he says, Paul preached the gospel to them and Lydia, wealthy merchant, dealing in expensive purple dyed goods. You can read about this in Acts 16. She became a believer. It is likely that the Philippian church initially met in her spacious home. And then satanic opposition to the new church immediately arose in the person of a demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. Not wanting even agreeable testimony from such an evil source, Paul cast the demon out of her. The apostles act enraged the girl's masters, who could no longer sell her services as a fortune-teller. They, they hauled Paul and Silas before the city magistrates and inflamed the civic pride of the Philippians by claiming the two preachers were a threat to Roman customs. As a result, Paul and Silas were beaten and imprisoned. The two preachers were miraculously released from prison that night by an earthquake, which unnerved the jailer and opened his heart and that of his household to the gospel. The next day, the magistrates, panicking when they learned they had illegally beaten and imprisoned two Roman citizens, begged Paul and Silas to leave Philippi. Paul apparently visited Philippi twice during his third missionary journey, once at the beginning and again near the end, as we can read in Acts 20. About four or five years after his last visit to Philippi, while a prisoner at Rome, Paul received a delegation from the Philippian church. The Philippians had generously supported Paul in the past and had also contributed abundantly for the needy at Jerusalem. Now hearing of Paul's imprisonment, they sent another contribution to him, and along with it, Epaphroditus to minister to Paul's needs. Unfortunately, Epaphroditus suffered a near-fatal illness, while, either while en route to Rome or after he arrived. Accordingly, Paul decided to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi and wrote the letter to the Philippians to send back with him. Paul had several purposes in composing this epistle. First, he wanted to express in writing his thanks for the Philippians' gift. Second, he wanted the Philippians to know why he decided to return Epaphroditus to them, so they would not think his service to Paul had been unsatisfactory. Third, he wanted to inform them about his circumstances at Rome. And fourth, he wrote to exhort them to unity. Finally, he wrote to warn them against false teachers in Philippians 3. And just in that commentary, um, we can see a lot of the events in Acts chapter 16. You can go read that uh, later um, or throughout the service. Uh, you can peruse that. But uh, 
we see the accounts of um, Paul's uh, establishing of the church and what happened there with him and Silas in jail. Um, but also, as MacArthur alludes to, that Paul would um, write to the church, he would visit the church again, and uh, just the nature of the church at Philippi, it was, um, it was a church that he loved. And he loved all the churches, but um, I, I believe Philippi was a special church to him. They supported him. They were thankful for him. Um, and they had... Um, in a sense, uh, there was, as he alludes to, the civic pride in, in, in their, um, their city and where they were. And he wants them to um, look past that, to, uh, to rejoice in their citizenship in heaven. But nonetheless, he writes to them to thank them and to compel them to rejoice in their status as citizens of heaven. And as we look at this introduction, is many of his introductions are they're very similar, um, but there's some things that we can uh, draw from this introduction that's that's different from his other introductions to his, his epistles to other churches. Um, there's indications of uh, his relationship uh, with Timothy and uh, Jesus with the church at Philippi, and, and even within the church at Philippi, their relationships with one another, and, and then uh, just the main implications and applications of the gospel. And looking at this introduction, we, we see really uh, three parts or three categories under which we could categorize this introduction. We see the writers, the recipients, and then the reasons for his writing of this letter. And so we'll look at it along that outline. But I want to read just something that uh, Dr. Will Varner, in his commentary, he writes. He says, Although Paul's opening addresses are consistent with the letters of the period, that many letters are like this, they are far from being stereotyped, stereotyped introductions. He adapts his self-description and his credentials to the circumstances of each letter, employs phrases to describe his Christian readers, and pours Christian content into his greetings. And so as we look at this short introduction of two verses, I want you to see that Christian content in his greetings. And first we'll see that in the writers. As he writes, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And just right there, uh, we, we see these, these two individuals, two individuals from even going back, uh, Paul in uh, Acts 9 and his conversion and then Timothy in, in Acts, the beginning of Acts 16, when Paul meets Timothy, and Timothy, in a sense, becomes his loyal uh, sidekick, his faithful sidekick and disciple. Um, and this relationship between Paul and Timothy is so well known throughout Scripture, and just it, it's alluded to um, amongst ministers of uh, having a Paul and a Timothy, or a young man um, seeking a Paul to disciple him, or an older uh, preacher seeking a Timothy to raise up and to send out into ministry. We know this relationship between Paul and Timothy. And as Paul writes a letter, um, as he does many of his letters, he's probably dictating it, and perhaps Timothy is writing it, and, and uh, it will go out. And so he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And so first we, we see Paul, a converted rabbi, a, a former persecutor and committed apostle. 
We have to think about that as we think about Paul writing this letter to the church. Uh, I think of um, Paul's testimony in his letter to Timothy. His first letter to Timothy as he encourages Timothy um, in his pastoral ministry at Ephesus. He writes in 1 Timothy in chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Because he regarded me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Among whom, among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's Paul's testimony, which he explains to Timothy, and also, in a sense, he explains to, uh, to many people, to the Jews, to the chief priests, to um, all his opponents throughout the book of Acts, throughout his life. Um, and it's something, as we read about Paul, as we read his letters, as we even uh, read his name, just his name, we should never forget that this man was a committed, um, well-educated, highly trained rabbi, zealous for the law, so much so that he persecuted Christians, that he um, committed them to death. And yet God had a different plan for his life, that he would show him who he really is. And even as we read about his conversion in Acts chapter 9, as Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to uh, reject my ways and reject my plan for your life. And as um, he says to, Jesus says to Ananias, um, I, I will um, show him how much he will suffer for my namesake. As Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles and in being the apostle to the Gentiles, he meets Timothy. Timothy, a son of a Jewish mother and a believer, um, and also the son of a Greek father. Beginning of Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, we read about um, Paul finding Timothy. His mother was a believer, but also later on in 2 Timothy, we would learn that Timothy, um, it wasn't just his mother that was a believer, but his grandmother taught him the scriptures. And yet his father was Greek. And so Paul had to circumcise him um, just for the sake of his mission, not because Timothy needed circumcision, but it would help them as he would go into synagogues and preach the gospel in uh, the Greco-Roman world. So we see right here Paul and Timothy, these two characters, uh, faithful brothers to one another, um, the older and the younger, um, Batman and Robin, if you would say. But also, he says, this second phrase, slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves of Jesus Christ, of, of Christ Jesus. That, that Jesus Christ is their master. 
As we went through the uh, letter to Philemon over the past few weeks, and uh, it alluded to slavery, and we see that in the other epistles, that um, slavery, it was, just, it was just reality. It was reality in the Roman world. About 80% of the people were slaves of different um, categories. Every single demographic was, could be a slave, from well-educated to um, illiterate, um, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your uh, vocation, whatever your background, you could um, be a slave. You could also um, win your freedom and then be enslaved again. And yet Paul writes here that they are slaves of Christ Jesus, that Jesus Christ is their master, that Jesus Christ owns them. But there's also a third um, implication from this first, uh, these first two phrases um, explaining these writers, that they are spirit-filled believers. They are spirit-filled believers, that they were enabled for the advancement of the kingdom as from the beginning of Paul's conversion, um, even Timothy, even a bit of his background, we, we see uh, God um, working in Timothy's life, the providence of God in his grandmother and his mother, you know, being taught the scriptures, uh, the providence of Paul coming into contact with Timothy, that Timothy would become his faithful sidekick. And we would learn about Timothy, and so much so that Paul writes two letters to Timothy that are, in a sense, a basis for um, instructions for pastoral ministry. That Timothy is an example for preachers and for believers. They're both enabled by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit for the advancement of the kingdom, but they're also inspired for the writing of Scripture. That the Spirit worked through them. As we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is uh, good for teaching, is profitable for doctrine, for equipping, that the man of God may be fully equipped, useful for every good work. And I'm just going to quote that um, rather than paraphrase it. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it is God-breathed through the human authors. God-breathed, moved through uh, prophets and apostles, through these men to write scripture. And, and here we have scripture through these two men. Peter would also explain this, this process of Scripture in 2 Peter in chapter 1, in which Peter writes uh, in verse 20 of chapter 1, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And this is what's happening through Paul and Timothy and not just here, but as they uh, go minister to others. So we see the writers as Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ and spirit-filled believers. And the second thing I want you to see here in this introduction is not just the writers, but the recipients of this letter. The recipients of this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. 
the saints, all the saints. And, and you know, most of us, um, either we come from a Catholic background or um, even uh, unbeknownst to us, we've been affected by uh, Roman Catholic teaching, even if that's only through our media and in our culture, so much so that some of us, um, it's hard to see ourselves as saints. We see uh, someone as a saint, as someone that's, that's way beyond us, higher than us, that, that's more committed than us, more devout than us. But a saint is just, as uh, the term would, would say, uh, the underlying Greek term, hagios, a, a holy one, set apart one, someone that's consecrated, that's set apart, uh, that has been uh, called out of the world. It's not a, a saint is not a saint because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done. And I love this word. As, as I, I come to, as I came to learn more about it, as I was um, converted and became a new believer with having uh, somewhat of a Roman Catholic background and learning what it really meant. Only, only one person makes a saint a saint, and that's Jesus Christ. Uh, no human authority can make someone a saint. No person can make themselves a saint. No pope can make themselves a saint. Only Jesus Christ can make someone a saint. He does that through uh, his sacrifice, through um, his gospel, through the power of the Spirit of causing someone to be born again. That even uh, one of my favorite verses to read is the introduction, Paul's introduction to his, the Corinthians, who his, his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, as we read throughout even First and Second Corinthians, and we read about how messed up that church was, and their, their sin, their disorderliness, and yet Paul, um, before he even rails against them, before he even corrects them, he says to the saints at Corinth, the saints. They were saints, not because of what they did, what they could do, what they didn't do, but only because of what Jesus Christ did on their behalf. And Paul writes that in many of his introductions to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Not just um, saints in general, but specific. Specific individuals who have been set apart before the foundation of the world to be holy, to be elect to be uh, uh, converted, to be born again in Christ Jesus. And there are the ones in Philippi um, implying that God has placed them here in this specific time and place to live out their Christian lives. All things are from God, for God, through God, for His glory. So we first see the saints as the first recipients. And, and then we see this term uh, with the overseers and deacons. First, the overseers. And this verse right here, as in our, our own doctrinal statement, many uh, Baptist doctrinal statements, and in fact, many evangelical Bible-believing churches have this verse in their doctrinal statement to show the two uh, offices within the church. To, that there are only two offices in the church in terms of church leadership, which is true. However, um, has anyone in here ever 
been a member of a church which had an overseer as their official title? Has anyone ever been on an overseer search committee? We tend to not use that, that uh, exact um, title, that exact um, uh, name for leaders. But it's still true. In this term, the underlying Greek term is episkopos. This is a term from which we get the Episcopalian church. It derives their name, episkopos. This is a, a term which is found approximately 23 times in the whole Bible, but only five times in the New Testament. That's why we don't see it that much. And it's often translated bishop in the Geneva Bible or the King James Version or the New King James Version. But many other uh, more recent English translations translate it as overseer. And it means one who has the responsibility of safeguarding or seeing to it that something is done in the correct way. Or guardian. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, um, I'm reading from um, one of the uh, uh, premier uh, lex Greek lexicons um, concerning the definition of this word episkopos. And uh, it says this, in the Greco-Roman world, it frequently refers to one who has a definite function or fixed office of guardianship and related activity within a group. The term was taken over in Christian communities in reference to one who served as overseer or supervisor with special interest in guarding the apostolic tradition. The old Baptist Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, he writes this in his commentary concerning this verse, and this term, episkopos. He says this, In the second century, episkopos came to mean one superior to elders, but not so in the New Testament. The two New Testament church officers are here mentioned, bishops or elders and deacons. The plural is here employed because there was usually one church in a city with several pastors, bishops, elders, and deacons. Technical sense here of the other church officers as in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. The origin, the origin of the office, he's talking about deacons, is probably seen in Acts 6. The term which we most often use to, um, to uh, define uh, church leadership, the term pastor, which is used in our culture, has been used for um, centuries, that term only shows up in one verse. Uh, translated, not, in, in some translations it doesn't even show up. Um, but the main verse it shows up is in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, in which it says, And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And there's a reason why it only shows up Typically once in most English translations, if at all. The underlying term for pastor comes from the Greek term poimen, which shows up in approximately 111 times in the Bible, only 22 times in the New Testament, and only three times in reference to pastoring. That term, poimen, means one who herds sheep, a shepherd, a shepherder. So it should be more literally translated shepherd, one who serves as a guardian or leader, a shepherd. Uh, and in the New Testament, 
most of that references, that, that term poimen, we most often see it uh, translated shepherd and reference to Jesus, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Sometimes it's translated as shepherd in reference to a pastor, but very rarely uh, is it even translated as pastor. So it's interesting that that term pastor is the most well-used term for church leadership, and yet it's the least that shows up in reference to pastoring. The third term we see in terms of pastors um, is didaskalos, or it's a Greek term for teacher. That term shows up approximately 72 times in the Bible, 54 times in the New Testament, and only eight times in reference to the gifting or office of teacher. As we just saw in Ephesians 4.11, pastor and teacher. And most often that, that term, didaskalos, teacher, um, in the New Testament, it's in reference to Jesus as the, uh, translated from the Hebrew term rabbi. Rabbi means teacher and uh, didaskalos, teacher. And so that is another term. But the term that is most often used to refer to the leaders of the church within the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the term presbyteros. That's the term from which the Presbyterian church gets their name, presbyteros. That term means elder. Also mean, could be used to defined as eldest, old, aged. That term shows up approximately 206 times in the Bible and 59 times in the New Testament. It begins mostly in the Old Testament in reference to the leadership um, structure of the Jewish nation, that they would have chief priests and elders, and the, the priests would, would uh, function more along the lines of um, uh, worship and uh, the, the sacrificial system, and then the elders would function more along the lines of, of civil leadership. But that term is carried over into the New Testament to, um, to refer to church leadership. Turn with me to, chapter, to Acts in chapter 11. The book of Acts in chapter 11. I want you to see this. Book of Acts in chapter 11. We read from verse 27 to 30. Now, in those days, this is a fledgling church, the new church, as the church is establishing itself in its order and what it is to do, its, its purpose, its ministry. It says this, Now, in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And as any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the service of the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And when they, then they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. 
Then Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. And after they had proclaimed the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And drop down to Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem Council. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had not a little dissension and debate with them, the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, recounting in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brothers. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them to command them to keep the law of Moses." Both the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Drop down to verse 22 to 23 of chapter 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, Judas called Bar Sabbath and Silas, leading men among the brothers to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brothers who are elders to the brothers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have, actually stop right there, um, and then move to chapter 16 and verses 4 to 5. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to keep. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were abounding in number daily. And then jump to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21 and verses 16 to 17. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And then I, I like to use you to see a, another verse which we often use concerning church leadership, an example of church leadership written by Peter in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, and he explains um, what leaders are to do. And this is an important passage, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 to 5. As Peter gets towards the end of his epistle, he writes this, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing, not under compulsion but willingly, according to God and not for dishonest gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders 
And all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in that passage, we see almost all four of these uh, titles. We see elders, we see shepherd, also could be translated pastor. We see overseeing, the verb over, overseer, the noun being used as a verb. We see the chief shepherd um, uh, applying, uh, uh, talking about Jesus. And then we see be subject to your elders. You know, we see all these terms for this office, the one office that we most commonly know as pastor. We see these four different terms, uh, overseer, which could be translated bishop. That's the, um, we see pastor. That's, in essence, the least used term. Uh, should be rightly translated shepherd. And we see teacher. And then we see elder. Elder, the most commonly used term. And, and I bring this up not to um, quibble about words and terms, but to show the fact that there's four interchangeable terms which are used for one office. There's only one office for pastor, and there's four terms. That's why sometimes we see different evangelical churches who use the term elders, and they have a different form of church government than we do here. Um, but nonetheless, the main thing I want you to see is that in all of these terms, almost, um, almost every one of them, they're used in the plural. There's a plural. Elders, overseers, uh, you know, teachers, pastors, uh, shepherds. Almost more often than not, it is in the plural. And there's a reason for that. Because God has ordained his church in such a way that there should be a plurality of pastors or elders or whatever you would term that office. And just by way of the, the words and the number of words, it, it should probably be termed elder, as the New Testament says, elder. More often than pastor, more often than overseer, more often than um, teacher, elders. And it's in the plural, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that, because there's only one head of the church. There's only one head of the church, and there's this concept of a plurality of pastors or elders because we're sinners. <laughs> and there's, there's uh, the tendency to create a dictatorship. And in our church tradition, going back to the Reformation, that's, you know, there's different forms of church government um, that, that believers have um, uh, designed to lead the church since the Reformation. And uh, part of um, congregationalism, which is um, our church government here, part of the reason for that is to be a check against a pastor becoming a dictator. And there's, there's biblical grounding for that form of church government, and I would commend you to learn more about the different forms of church government and um, evangelicalism. Um, but nonetheless... The reason why I went through that whole lengthy process was to show you that there should be a plurality. Now, I know oftentimes in, in many small churches, you, you don't have the ability to support another pastor, another elder. Um, you got to make do with what you have. But the ideal is that there would be a plurality because 
they would balance each other out with strengths and weaknesses. They would put each other in check. It would be more beneficial to the body. There is principle of plurality. This is why Paul says to Titus um, in, in probably the, the premier passages, there, there's two passages concerning leadership in the church, which shows the, the qualifications, the nature of leadership in the church. The first one is Titus chapter 1. And you can read along Titus chapter 1 and verses 5 to 9. As Paul instructs Titus, he says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of dishonest gain, but hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the, word, the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. And even in that passage, we see the two titles of elders and overseer used interchangeably. In 1 Timothy 3, the passage we know best about church leadership, which um, explains this, the, the nature and the character of pastors, elders, overseers, um, and then it goes on to the nature and character of deacons. It says this, 1 Timothy 3 and 1 to 15, it is a trustworthy saying, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil." And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And then it goes on to deacons. Likewise, um, like elders, overseers, pastors, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And here we have in some translations uh, what I believe is a mistranslation. Um, it can even either be translated, um, their wives must likewise be dignified or women must likewise be dignified. I would take it that term gunekos could be translated women or wives. I would take that with the context to mean the deacon's wives must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children, their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is a church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul writes these instructions concerning church leadership 
um, along with other instructions in his epistle to Timothy, his first epistle, to show him um, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's why we call those epistles Titus, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. It's why we call those epistles the pastoral epistles because they show us how um, leadership should function in the church and how people in the church should function, how the church should be structured. It should be well-ordered. It should have two offices, um, whether you call it overseer or pastor or, or elder, um, most likely elder, that's the one office, and then the second, deacon. And this term deacon comes from the word diakonos, um, which is defined as one who is busy with something in a matter that is of assistance to someone, one who serves as an intermediary in a transaction, an agent, an intermediary, or a courier. Um, with specific reference to an aspect of the divine message of apostles and other prominent Christians charged with its transmission. We get this concept of the office of deacon um, from Acts chapter 6, where it's first established where we, we see in the fledgling church in Acts chapter 6, it says this, Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this need. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And so right there, you see a division of duties, you see a division of responsibilities, you see a division of focus, that the pastors, the elders, the teachers, um, the overseers of the church should focus on prayer and the service or the ministry of the word, teaching, preaching the word, and praying for the people, while deacons, that, that office was established so that they could take care of the logistical and practical and administrative needs of the church to free up the pastor, elder, to focus on what he has to focus on. And when a church does that and does it well, according to scripture, then it functions well, as God has designed it to function. And as anything in the Christian life, we are to submit to Scripture. We are to be Bereans in every aspect of the church, in every aspect of our Christian lives, that we are to search the Scriptures daily to see if these things are true concerning not only the gospel, but church leadership, church government, church function, church purpose, the mission of the church, everything with the church. We are to submit to Scripture first and not tradition and there's a reason why I went through that whole harangue of just these two titles overseers and deacons because more often than not a statement of faith will include this short verse and not have a, a lot of the um, substantiating verses to support it but we we don't um, establish a theology based on just one verse we use the whole of scripture to support that and there's a reason also why i believe that the apostle paul included this short little phrase um, with these three people these three recipients the saints the overseers and the deacons and i believe it it goes back to uh 
the, the cities, uh, uh, their background, their, their culture, the society. That it was a military uh, city. That it was established by veterans, um, the, the Roman city. It was established by veterans of, um, of the Roman army, uh, retired military men. And so just that, you, you can think that the city itself was highly structured, highly organized, and so the church as well must have been highly structured, highly organized, probably well running. And, and it, 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 there's proof for that in the fact that they gave above and beyond all the other churches. They were a well-ordered church. They were functioning well because they had uh, a well-ordered leadership according to Scripture. And so in this short introduction, we have seen the writers, we've seen the recipients, and now the reasons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. A, a common introduction of Paul. And it's something that I've commented on before and I will continue to comment on, that this is the gospel in a nutshell. Grace to you and peace. Grace, uh, the grace of God, the peace of God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was enamored by this. He never wanted to forget it. He constantly talked about it. It was in his uh, introductions. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. William Barclay, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, Paul's greetings to his friends is, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and in Philemon. He goes on, he says, When Paul put together these two words, grace and peace, charis in the Greek and irene in the Greek, he was doing something very wonderful. He was taking the normal greeting phrases of two great nations and molding them into one. Charis is a gre greeting with which Greek letters always begin, and irene, shalom in Hebrew, is a greeting which with Jews met each other. Each of these words had its own flavor, and each was deepened by the new meaning which Christianity poured into it. Grace and peace. Grace, the, the, the grace of God. First and foremost, he, he wants the first reason he writes this letter, the first reason he writes all his letters, the, the first and number one reason why he does all that he does is because of the grace of God. The grace of God. His whole life was one of grace. His ministry was one of grace. It was by grace that he was made an apostle, that he was arrested by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He talks about grace all the time. And probably the most um, comprehensive dealing of grace, um, that, or perhaps uh, the, the most clear dealing of grace, is in Ephesians chapter 2, a, a chapter which we use in our evangelism, which we should always use in our evangelism, a chapter which, in, in a sense, that beginning we should memorize. Some of us have memorized uh, certain portions of it. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 was the, the, the verse that, that I was convicted and, and by which I was saved and brought into the kingdom. And he says in Ephesians 2, uh, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also, all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, 
doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Explaining the total depravity of mankind, that spiritually you are dead. And as many preachers have said before, what can a dead man do? Nothing. Dead man can't reach out to God. He can't call upon God. He can't make a decision for God. God must act upon the dead man. And we were spiritually dead in our transgressions and sins. As the Apostle Paul says here, as the Apostle Paul says several other places, as even Jesus Christ himself says, that you must be born again. You must be born again. You can't birth yourself. What contribution did you have to your natural birth? Did you say in the, you know, before in the womb or... or before, hey, mom and dad, I want to be born. No, you did not. And that's why Jesus uses that analogy of you must be born again because this must be something that happens by God that is a spiritual act. You must be born of the Spirit, born from above because you were dead in your transgressions and sins, even as the rest. But here comes the grace, and this is why it's so gracious. This is why the grace of God is so awesome, because in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, But God. But God. I've known many people, preachers, pastors, believers, who have made signs, posters, little things all around their house that just has those two words, but God. Because that's our hope. And that's our only hope. But God, that's the only hope we have, is that God would act upon us, that God would move in us, that God would help us, that God would have mercy upon us, that God would bestow his grace upon us. And Paul goes on, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And you just, you look at the, who's doing the actions, you look at the verbs, you look at the pro, pronouns, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him. It wasn't our wise decision. It wasn't because we raised a hand and walked an aisle. And if we did that, it was because God first moved upon us. And convicted us of our sin and our need for a savior. And by faith we called out to him. And that was his grace working in us. And he goes on and he says, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. None of it. Not the grace, not the faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. As Paul says in other places, let, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's all we have to boast in. What do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast? There's no boasting. There's no boasting with God. We will glorify God because of his grace. And Paul constantly mentions this grace. It wasn't just a simple greeting. It was his whole life. And it should be our whole lives. The grace of God. The number one reason why he wrote this letter. Why he does what he does. Why he can uh, uh, be in that prison and endure everything in that prison. Whether it's mocking or, or, or whether it's... Um, 
a beating or whatever it may be. And that first imprisonment may have been light, but whatever the case may be, he was in prison, he was hindered. And throughout his whole life, he says uh, he, he understands the grace of God in salvation, in his ministry, and he extends that grace to others. And then second, we see the peace of God. It's not just grace to you, but peace also from God, the peace of God. This is another aspect of the gospel that we, we, we are saved by grace through faith as a gift of God. Both of those are gifts of God. Is God's grace because we're dead in our transgressions of sin, but the grace of God leads to the peace of God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, explaining the gospel in greater detail, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in hope of the glory of God. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not just an end of hostilities, not just um, going from the bad to the neutral, but going from the worst to the best. Peace, shalom, prosperity, well-being, a, a right relationship, the peace of God. This is why Paul has it in all of his greetings, grace to you and peace. But not just that, he goes and he extends further. And in each and every one of these things could, could almost be in a succession. It begins with the grace and then we experience the peace and then we see our relationship with God. The reasons why he writes this letter, why he does all that he does, is because first and foremost, the grace of God. Second, the peace of God. And then third, our relationship with God because of his grace, because of his peace. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we pray those prayers and often, more often than not, I begin my prayers with Heavenly Father. Some of us say our Father. Um, some of us say Father God. Um, all those are right and true, but the danger is that sometimes we can just skip over it. And we say it so much that we forget the significance of it. That the creator of the universe... The perfect judge of all creation, the one who knows our every thought, word, and deed, who knows um, who we are in and out, who knows the worst things about us that we would not want anyone else to know. Through his grace, we have been adopted into his family as sons so that he is our father, so that we can call upon him. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That term Abba, that term of endearment. And he is our Father. He is our Heavenly Father, and He is ruler, and He is Lord, and He is sovereign. But He's also, in a sense, our dad. And sometimes that sounds a bit irreverent when you hear people say that, um, but it's true. He's our dad. He's our father. If you are in Christ Jesus, and only if you are in Christ Jesus, because he goes on, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our relationship is with our father and our Lord. 
This is Paul says, Romans 10, 9, a, a, a verse and a passage you should memorize, especially in evangelism, especially um, if you want to know how you can be saved, how you were saved. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, he must be your Lord. He is your Lord, whether you bow the knee to him or not. But you must confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As Paul goes on, for with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter how many sins you have committed, doesn't matter your background, your relationships. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is not a, just a superficial call, this is a true call. As I just said, it's only by grace that we are saved, and that grace is initiated by God, but there's still a responsibility to call upon the Lord. To seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near, to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead. And you must believe that he raised him from the dead too because you must believe that that sacrifice was satisfactory. It was received by God. And so we see our relationship is with our Father, with our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. All starting with the grace of God and the peace of God so that now through grace we experience peace and we experience a relationship which uh, Paul alludes to in Titus chapter 3. He says, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is our relationship with God, those who have repented and believed, those who have called out to God, those who have confessed with their mouth Jesus is the Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead, those who have experienced the grace of God and the peace of God. And that peace that Paul would go on to say, the peace of God, it surpasses all understanding. It is a perfect peace. And because of that, we celebrate. We celebrate this sacrifice on our behalf. We're commanded to, but we do it willingly and joyfully. As even Paul says in Philippians at the end of chapter 1, his, his desire for the Philippians, his, his uh, goal, he says in Philippians 1.27, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. The gospel should produce unity and a unity of partnership within the gospel, within the church, um, for the sake of the gospel. 
And this is why we call this celebration communion. Because it's not just that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, what he commanded us to celebrate, but we're celebrating the effects, the implications, the applications that by his death, burial, and resurrection, we are saved. And so we celebrate that sacrifice. But through that sacrifice, we are called into one body. And so we commune together and we are reminded that we are united into one body through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come. And this table, as we celebrate, is for all those who have repented and believed, have been born again, are in the family. It doesn't necessarily um, require church membership. Though, if you are a true believer, you should be a member of a local church where you live out your Christian life. Um, doesn't necessarily require baptism, but if you have been born again, you will be baptized as you are commanded to. Um, it does require that you are um, a true believer and that you are walking in obedience and holiness, not perfection, but striving for holiness, as Paul commands us. And he commands the, the, the church at Corinth to examine yourselves, to, to be sure that you are in the faith, to not to eat this bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. So as we prepare to do just that, let us examine our hearts. Let us confess any known sin so we would not eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. And so I am going to pray and then we will have the men will dismiss you um, to gather the elements and then we will celebrate the supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the principles therein. And too often, as, as most of Scripture, we can become too familiar. We can gloss over certain words and phrases and just as if we've read them before. And so, Lord, help us to think deeply about the principles just in these short two verses, the, the background, the context. This is the grace of God, the peace of God, your, your grace, your peace, our relationship with you through Jesus Christ, not because of anything we did or could do or would do, but only because of what Jesus Christ done on our behalf. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, help us to focus on him. In his name we pray. Amen.